You are now listening to a podcast by Sanofi, led by Norwegian brain scientist and best-selling author Ole Petter Gjelle. A large proportion of patients with MS continue to experience clinical deterioration despite a lack of overt ongoing inflammatory disease activity. Detecting smoldering MS in clinical practice can be challenging. The EDSS is the most commonly used tool, but it's not sufficiently sensitive to detect subtle changes in disability. Moreover, ongoing relapses with incomplete recovery often make it difficult to pinpoint the clinical occurrence of disability progression. Today on the MS Podcast, we have the pleasure to welcome Professor Guy Loris from Ghent University, one of the leaders in the MS field. So welcome to the MS Podcast, Professor Guy Loris. Hi, Ole. Thank you for having me on uh, to talk on this uh, very important, uh, interesting topic in uh, MS. Before we go deeper into the matter of smoldering MS, could you briefly explain to us what exactly is meant by smoldering MS and why it is of critical importance to start incorporating it in clinical practice? Sure. So I think uh, the most common use biomarkers uh, in evaluating disease control nowadays uh, in clinical practice uh, are mainly clinical in nature, so relapses, EDSS progression, and we also look at MRIs, we count lesions. Uh, The arrival of potent MS-modifying drugs has led to very well-controlled disease in the majority of people with MS in terms of uh, these measures we follow up in routine clinical practice. But despite this, many of these patients will tell us that they have some kind of slow accrual of disability and it's sometimes very hard to pinpoint as well for them uh, as well as for us. And it's something that has been objectified in recent studies uh, that there is some ongoing disability progression which is uh, not to be attributed to relapses or MRI activity. By example, there was this recent a 2020 JAMA paper by Kapos et al., where they looked at confirmed disability accumulation in the OPERA trials, and they saw that about 80 to 90% of uh, disability accumulation was independent of relapses. And this is what we call uh, PIRA, or progression independent of relapse activity. Now, there also was a very interesting study uh, at the 2021 Actrims meeting presented by the Barcelona-based ChemCat uh, uh, people who showed that in a, a CIS cohort, so very early on in this disease, that about a, a third of patients with CIS will have disability accumulation over five years of time, which is not to be attributed to relapses. Moreover, within this cohort, of patients, about 70% of patients didn't have any accumulation of new T2 lesions. So I think this clearly illustrates that within MS, there's an important segment of patients who have accumulation of disability already early on in the disease, which is completely silent uh, in terms of relapses or MRI activity. And so this brings us to the concept of underlying smoldering disease. It's an umbrella term uh, and it's uh, characterizing smoldering or chronic neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration 
leading to disability progression and the nature and the mechanisms remain uncertain. So it might reflect neurodegenerative mechanisms or CNS tract neuroinflammation, such as small ring lesions, and maybe also meningeal inflammation inducing cortical damage. So in summary, identifying new biomarkers for the small ring disease activity is critical in identifying and treating disability progression at its roots. Smoldering MS can best be explained to patients, I think, as the fact that stable brain scans and absence of relapses does not really exclude silent disability progression and that this is due to less visible mechanisms of brain damage that take place in uh, MS. Is your experience that the patients are aware of this uh, term, smoldering MS? Or is it something that really needs to be explained thoroughly to most of the patients? Well, it is something that they're usually aware of uh, more than us, uh, in the sense that it's something that they often bring up during uh, the routine consultations that they're experiencing that there's something going on. I think uh, not recognizing it is something that more comes from our side because we usually wave it away and say, yeah, like the brain scans good and 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 you don't have any relapses, but often still you have this gut feeling that there's something wrong and and it's usually only if you follow up patients over a longer period of time that you have to recognize that this this feeling they had of something being wrong and that they are progressing that it turns out to be true and that over a a larger time period over more time that you see that indeed they start to accumulate handicaps so i think the mistake mainly comes from our side and so it's it's very important that we incorporate it in our discussion with the patients, uh, that we're aware of it, and that we're also not the, afraid of discussing it because it's a very, a very sensitive uh, issue, in the sense that people people and patients are very well aware that uh, the progressive part of this disease is something that is that is frightening and that is still very hard to treat. Uh, we're often left uh, without uh, resources or treatments to have really an impact on this aspect of the disease. So that's what, what it looks like in my practice in any way. Could you, from your clinical practice, give me an example of a clinical case with a patient that, despite having been told that they have an inactive disease, is still deteriorating clinically? I think there's a lot to learn from cases, and I particularly remember a 43-year-old woman uh, who was diagnosed about 10 years ago. And initially, she had a lot of relapses and MRI activity, uh, but still not a very pronounced handicap. She was able to run about 20K runs, and she had an EDSS of one, worked full-time. So due, due to this very active disease, we, uh, we opted to treat her uh, immediately with highly active treatment. So in the five upcoming years, she uh, didn't have uh, the, any relapses, no MRI activity, but still she told us that she felt like it was becoming more difficult, mainly in running. So she stopped running due to some subjective inability uh, and maybe some slight leg weakness. 
And she also noted some, uh, uh, some very discreet uh, and very rare episodes of incontinence. And then also in the working situation, it was becoming a little bit more difficult having some mild cognitive symptoms and complaints. And so despite in the following years being free of relapses and any MRI activity, she started to slowly accumulate uh, disability and ends up with an EBSS of six today. So over 10 years of time without any obvious inflammatory activity, she evolved from an EDSS of one to six. And I think this particular case illustrates the subtle signs of deterioration uh, that can be the, the harbinger of uh, this handicap. So uh, a slight decrease in locomotor function, bladder function and cognitive complaints are alarm signals. I think that there might be something that's going on and that's smoldering and that will lead to eventual increasing handicap. Yeah, so picking up on that, um, we know that it can be tough to detect smoldering disease as it could sometimes be difficult to distinguish whether it is a sign of a temporary deterioration or a chronic one. Do you have any examples of questions that can be asked to the patients at the consultation that will maybe help us provide a better understanding of possible subtle deterioration that manifests maybe particularly early in a patient's daily life? Yeah, of course. I think uh, the the case uh, immediately illustrates the more most important concepts that we have to take into account. I think it's it's very important that's crucial to ask beyond the classical symptoms of a mass and relapses and do it repeatedly over time. And I think you, we should focus, by example, on uh, bladder function, uh, on changes in physical and professional activity, and cognitive well-being in those patients. And that's of particular great interest. And I think that in this context, the development of an implementation of optimal patient reported outcomes or PROs is of great interest in order to capture at least part of what we're missing and the subtle changes that may give rise to handicap in the, in the long term. So it's quite clear that it's critical for the patients that we are able to characterize elements of disease progression more comprehensively than we do today which would most likely be missed on a routine neurological examination, for instance, the EDSS. Um, do you have any suggestions to additional measurements that we could incorporate into clinical practice to help these patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I think that, uh, of course, time is, of course, uh, the major restraint in clinical practice and that the most important tests that we could add or by example, a six-monthly time 20-foot uh, walk test and a nine-hole pack test, which may greatly enhance the sensitivity of our clinical appreciation as shown in EDSS+. So EDSS+, Plus is uh, incorporating these two aspects into routine EDSS rating. Moreover, I uh, think that a yearly SDMT as a cognitive screen is of uh, great uh, use and value. Next to that, uh, I hope we will have some more uh, sensitive MRI biomarkers who are popping up in literature, and I hope they were, will uh, become more accessible with time. And then uh, I'm thinking about the, the slowly expanding lesions, by example, or cortical lesions, which may be good uh, biomarkers of this uh, smoldering disease. Uh, 
and on the other hand, as I stated previously, I think that uh, better uh, PROs and incorporating them in, in clinical practice and maybe some serum biomarkers may help us in uh, detecting and unraveling uh, smoldering disease. Some of these additional measurements that you just have explained, do you feel that the neurological community have already started to incorporate these into clinical practice or do we still have ways to go? Yes, I, I, I think that the more accessible tests like the Time 20 Foot Walk Test, the 9-hole pack test, SDMT is something that is uh, well incorporated in many of the practices in uh, uh, routine follow-up, at least uh, in, in, in Belgium. I think that when it comes to MRI biomarkers, it's uh, still a little bit early to say uh, whether it will be feasible and useful on an individual level. So I think there's data coming up that it, it might be uh, interesting uh, to use, but it's, it's uh, technically, I think, still challenging uh, and it's not so accessible to have uh, the, the right uh, sequences and uh, to incorporate it into the, 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 the practice of the neuroradiologist. And then still remains to be seen whether it's something that we can use, use on an individual level in, in patients. I understand that you are also investigating certain markers of subtle disease activity. Could you elaborate a little bit more on this? Yeah, so indeed, uh, we have several ongoing uh, research investigations. And uh, I think that one of the, the things that is uh, of particular interest and that we're looking into is, is mainly passive and uh, continuous monitoring. So by example, uh, we have an ongoing study in which we uh, will be looking into the use of uh, day-to-day uh, -day, uh, cell phone use and, and if there are factors that might uh, detect and maybe predict the evolution of uh, cognitive dysfunction uh, over time. So this, this might be something of interest for the future. Uh, in another project, we're looking into uh, the added value of wearables in tracking uh, uh, so locomotor function, by example, uh, and sleep in uh, patients with MS. So I think in both of those projects, the, the key concept is mainly passive tracking. So without uh, any necessity of active cooperation of the patients and otherwise also more continuous uh, uh, evaluation of the patients because the, the routine follow-up we have in the clinic is, is mostly a little bit uh, of a distorted picture and it only gives us a, a snapshot of how people function, but it's it's crucial to look uh, what happens outside of the hospital walls in, in daily life. So that's one aspect. And then uh, another aspect we're looking into is uh, I'm quite a strong believer in the context, in the concept that our longest accents are most sensitive to injury. And uh, so metrics that look at corticospinal tract dysfunction, which are longest accents, uh, might be potentially ideal biomarkers to measure the gap we have in measuring subclinical progression. So motor evoke potentials are an easy to use and widely available technique to measure these corticospinal tracts. And one of our PhD students is monitoring people with MS on a yearly basis with motor evoke potentials 
to evaluate its potential in measuring smoldering disease activity. So have you been able to find uh, any valuable information here in your studies so far, uh, looking for early sensitive markers? I think it's still early to comment on, on uh, eventual result, results, but in, in any way, I think we already can comment on, on the motor revolt potentials and it's, it's not uh, uh, any evidence derived from statistics on results we have, but we see in clinical practice that if you have uh, abnormal motor revolt potentials, uh, and that they change over time, that they're getting worse, that it is often uh, an early sign that there's something going on. And uh, if we follow those patients up over time, we usually see that they will start to accumulate, accumulate uh, disability, uh, even if they don't have any other uh, obvious symptoms of clinical disease activity, relapses or MRI activity. But it's not based on analysis of the data, so it's 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 more a clinical observation we have in in doing do those studies. As most of our listeners, they are clinical neurologists. Uh, I would like to ask you to short little summary some key takeaways from this highly interesting talk, maybe about what we'll have to do differently from now on to be able to serve our patients even better. Yeah, sure. I think as key takeaways that in neurology, MS has certainly been the field where we have seen major steps forward uh, uh, in the last uh, decades and certainly in, in terms of treatment. So our current clinical armamentarium, uh, we are usually able to almost completely abrogate any inflammatory disease activity as measured by routine clinical uh, and MRI metrics. But still, uh, this seems insufficient and it seems only to be the tip of the iceberg when it's uh, coming to the risk of disability uh, progression over time. And so a lot of that is not captured in these measures. So we absolutely need more sensitive techniques to capture smoldering disease. And this will help us to more accurately prognostify, monitor, and treat our patients. And I think this is also uh, crucial to have these markers in research and in clinical trials, as this crucial and of importance in developing new DMTs, which are really aimed at tackling this smoldering uh, disease activity. Thank you for some really good and solid key takeaways there, Professor Guy Loris. And we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be uh, here on the MS Podcast. Thank you for a really interesting and fascinating talk. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Sanofi. 